Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Jackie. We are doing it. We are here on our podcast. Can you believe it? I am so excited. First of all, also, I miss you. <laughs> I miss you too. Oh my gosh. We, but we'll get to see each other in April. We have it's a true. couple performances lined up in April, so that'll mm-hmm. be very cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. For the listeners who don't know us yet, I live in Mississippi and Jackie lives in Missouri, so we have a good 10 hours between us, which is which is hard for people who love each other as much as I love you. <laughs> well, the feeling is mutual. Why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners a little bit? Um, I'm Galit Kaunitz, and I am the oboist of this duo. Um, I teach uh, oboe at the University of Southern Mississippi. This is currently my second year of teaching at USM. I love it so much. I love my students uh, and my colleagues and uh the only thing I don't love is being really far away from you. I'm the only thing that you're sad to be far away from. I'm sure your family will feel <laughs> fantastic about that. <laughs> Glad to hey, know Mom. I rank the highest above all. <laughs> hey, Mom and Dad, love you. <laughs> and you just got done preparing and performing the Strauss Concerto. Oh, I sure did. It was a, How was that? It was about two weeks ago almost two weeks ago, and uh, it was a very long journey. I started... Are you still having nightmares? No, but I was having nightmares before. (laughs) (laughs) The nightmares have gone away. I started preparing six months ago, and I really, at the time, felt like that was not enough time. Like, six months ago, I was freaking out, like, oh my god, I can't believe I waited this long. But in the end, it turned out it turned out really great. The performance was really good and the experience was really good. And uh, I had a, a 40 read goal. Um, right. And I'm so sad to say I did not end up meeting my goal. I got to 36 and I would have gotten to 40 except all, like I had a lot of cracking reads at the end and I just could not in good conscience count them. So I had 36, but um, it was really worth it because I learned a lot about what I need out of a read. Um, and that piece is so athletic and such a beast that I got to be a lot more picky than I normally allow myself to be. So it really changed my um, perspective on read making and what a good read actually does for me. So all in all, it was a really great experience. I'm so glad I did it. I got to wear a beautiful red dress and go out (laughs) on stage and play with these incredible students. And and I got to go home and go to sleep. And it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I bet after you do something like that, you feel like you could play anything, like bring it on, whatever it is. Yeah, like I kind it. of do feel like that. Like nothing is ever <laughs> going to make me more nervous than that. <laughs> so, Very yeah, cool. what's going on with you? Well, um, for our listeners, I am Jackie Wilson, 
and I teach at Southeast Missouri State University in Cape Girardeau. This is also my second year of teaching. And in fact, Galit and I know each other because we worked together in a previous position, um, left at the same time, and of course, kept in touch and remained great friends. Um, I love my job too, I'm very happy. My job, I think like probably a lot of other double read players requires me to wear many hats. And so I'm balancing applied teaching and performing with also um, a course load of several courses while my studio um, hopefully grows. Um, so I've got a lot of um, different things on my plate, but all things that I'm excited about. So, so basically you have a ton of free time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all the free time in the world and uh yes it's just easy street not a problem you just performed a concerto didn't you i did it's not quite comparable to the strauss my bassoon friends will know the weber andante and hungarian rondo it's a very standard piece um and i got to play that with the st louis wind symphony which was very cool i had an awesome experience but um, not really like the Strauss in that, you know, most of us will learn that work um, in our undergraduate uh, degree, maybe even high school. I know some high schoolers who've performed it. And um, yeah, it's, um, it's not without its challenges, but it's pretty standard repertoire and very familiar and I've performed it many times, but audiences love it. And the thing I love about that concerto is it's so wonderfully orchestrated. The bassoon is as you know, sometimes hard to project and hear over a large ensemble, and especially I was playing with a band. So um, the orchestration, and it, it's theme and variation, so you take turns. I play a variation, and the orchestra or band uh, plays a 2D section and vice versa. So you really get to relax and shine and just um, sit back. So it was fun. It was not the stress of preparing the Strauss oboe concerto, <laughs> though I will concede to it that. It still definitely. sounds like a lot of fun. But I was so inspired by that read journal that you kept. Yeah. You posted online, and the listeners can find it under your hashtag yes. Strauss mm -hmm. Strategies, which you use to kind of chronicle your preparation. And maybe you can expand upon this, but I loved you used different columns to grade, um, and you started with like the biggest level of acceptable mm -hmm. versus unacceptable. I went through every single read, and I um, I made two big columns. Um, like you said, one was acceptable, and the other one was unacceptable. And then I broke each one of those large columns into two smaller columns. So there was excellent and good in the acceptable column, and then um, fair, or no, moderate and poor. Um, and I ended up having kind of a nice little bell curve, uh, which, you know, I, I should say that I had also um, numbered all of my staples so that I could identify um, which one was which. And so I just started ranking them and putting them in the columns. And that actually really helped me figure out what is a deal breaker in a read and what isn't. Because, you know, I had to make a decision, is this moderate is this poor is it okay <laughs> mm -hmm. and um i had mm -hmm. i had originally put six reads out of the 36 in the excellent column and i went back and looked at them again the next day and i ended up moving two of those into the mm -hmm. good column because they were crowing a little flat and i didn't really trust them to be able to hold the pitch up in the high register so i had four reads that i thought were probably good enough to perform on um, 
And mm-hmm. out of those four, two stood out more than the other two. And the one that I ended up playing on was number 18. And I had made it uh, the week before. So I had, it was probably in the middle of its life because I, you know, I would make the reads and play on them a little bit and then put them away and not really touch them. Um, I wasn't wearing out any one read over another. So they had a pretty long lifespan, all things considered. And uh, yeah, I ended up, I ended up playing on number 18. And to be honest with you, it didn't really feel comfortable until the dress rehearsal the night before. It felt like it finally broke in during the dress rehearsal. And I said, you know what, I think I'd be comfortable playing on this one tomorrow. And that's what I did. I ended up having my concert read a backup read that I could use in case I knocked my good read on my teeth or something. And then a backup to my backup, which I was crossing my fingers mm-hmm. that I would not have to use because of the challenge in the Strauss is that you don't have the energy to um, manage your read. It's just, it has to do everything automatically. Response was the most important thing to me and then intonation and then tone. So I needed to have something that responded with absolutely no hesitation in every register, Um, something that played in tune without me having to do anything weird with my tongue or with my embouchure. Um, And it needed to have a beautiful sound also. So I got, I think, you know, it was kind of frustrating in the end because I had made 36 reads and in the end there was only like two that I would consider playing the concerto on. Well, you know the thing I always say with my students, I use this metaphor that um, selecting a read is like dating. In that, you know, sometimes we hang on for a little bit too long. The relationship is dead. It's done. We need to let go. We don't always want to let go, you know. Um, sometimes we want to act like something has a little bit more potential than it actually does. <laughs> um, when you find the right one, there's nothing like it. But the really important thing is when you figure out it is not working, you need to move on. Don't try to turn, you know, something that is not going to play for you into um don't kid yourself, essentially, in terms of reads. And it's actually a pretty, you know, extensive metaphor when you apply it, but it almost always works, you know. And so I'll say, will you date this read? So one of the things we want to do on this podcast every episode is give you a couple shout outs of things that we love or have been helpful in our everyday lives as performers and teachers and see if they help you as our listeners. So Galit, what are you shouting out this week? I have two shout outs this week that I'm super grateful for. And to give you a little background information, I'm having an awesome week because I get to sub with the Louisiana Philharmonic in New Orleans and the oboe section sounds amazing and not only do they sound amazing but they are really nice people so I'm really excited to be playing the planets with them and I'm playing English horn and I would like my first shout out to go to my English horn read which is really coming through for me especially today (laughs) in rehearsal it 
articulated when I wanted it to. It was in tune and it sounded good enough to match the beautiful sounds coming out of the rest of the section. So I am very grateful to that read. Thank you, Reed. Please keep doing what you're doing. Thank and, you, Reed. <laughs> and my second shout out is to my my trusty car. I was not at all concerned that I was going to get to rehearsal on time, um, that I was going to get home safely because it is two hours away. Um, so I would like to thank my car and to ask it to also please keep doing what it is doing. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie, what are yours? This week, I'm going to shout out all the students who did not get a fall break. So most universities, really yes, they either have a fall break, which is like a little uh, three-day weekend in October, and then a shorter Thanksgiving, or some schools like SEMO have a week-long Thanksgiving, but no break until then. So this is actually a newer thing. Um, they used to have a fall break. My students are all used to a fall break, um, but this is the second year that we've had an entire week for Thanksgiving, which is nice. It's nice to get an entire week off, but be, by this point in the semester, my students are crawling across the finish line. They are tired, they are worn out, they are burnt out mentally. They are just ready for a break. So I'm shouting out my students who are pushing through that fatigue to end their semester strong. You can do it. We believe in you. You really can do it. Truly. <laughs> but I understand how tired they are. We were both there. <laughs> yes, yep. we were there. And your teachers are tired, too. So cut them some slack. And we love you. And we're supporting <laughs> you. And just hang on. You can make it. Definitely. Well, speaking of awesome double read players, we have an awesome guest for this first episode. I am so excited that he agreed to be on the podcast. Andrew Brady, principal bassoon of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. How excited I'm are you? Really excited. I've met Andrew once, um, and I remember this was a different time. I was subbing with the LPO, actually, the only other time. And I remember walking into the rehearsal room, and I was hearing this bassoonist warm up on stage. And I stopped in my tracks and I said, Who? is playing because they are <laughs> amazing it was just scales he was just playing scales and i like could not even walk it was so beautiful so i'm super excited to talk to him well you stopped in your tracks and then you sent me yes a text. i did i specifically remember the principal bassoonist in the lpo which he was at the time is amazing and of course i knew that was my good friend andrew i actually met andrew when he was a wee lad a teen <laughs> <laughs> and uh during my master's degree at boston university my teacher the amazing the incomparable matthew ruggiero rest in peace we love you invited me to be his teaching assistant for the Tanglewood um, workshop for the high school bassoons. And Andrew was one of the bassoonists who attended that workshop. And even then you would think, I believe he was a sophomore in high school. Um, he was draw, jaw droppingly, I'm trying to make <laughs> sure I say that, <laughs> jaw droppingly talented, compelling, musical. It was just 
amazing. It was like, even then, you could tell this was a special talent, a special musician. I remember um, the students had a series of sessions, and then, of course, like any camp, they would go to lunch or they'd have social time. And Dr. Ajero and I, um, one day, we were picking up, um, cleaning up the room after the students had left, and he looks at me and he goes, that student, Andrew. And I was like, I know we were just like holy moly and so actually Andrew and I have stayed in touch ever since and I just couldn't be prouder of his trajectory um couldn't be prouder but also couldn't be less surprised it was just like yes of course this is where you should be letting everyone hear your music so if you are in the Atlanta area or if you can reasonably drive you need to hear this guy played because you will not regret yeah, it. He's I, just phenomenal. I couldn't agree more. I wish that I wish that I lived closer to Atlanta so I could go hear him. Um, maybe someday, maybe someday I'll be able to, I think it's six hours away. So maybe someday. It is my utmost pleasure to welcome Andrew Brady to the podcast. Andrew is the principal bassoonist of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, such as what you do and a little bit about how you got there. Well, thank you, Galit and Jackie, for having me. Uh, It's really a pleasure to be able to talk to you both. It's been a while since I've been able to chat with you, but it's good to hear you. Um, So, as you said, Galit, I'm the principal bassoonist with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And I just started uh, in January. Well, I, I say just, but it's actually been a few months, so it's not so new. Um, but around this time last year, I was completing my trial. Uh, I was playing the Verdi Requiem with the orchestra, and that's when I found out I got the job. So it's been about a year since I knew I'd be moving to Atlanta. Um, before I was here, I was in New Orleans. I was the bassoonist with Louisiana, Louisiana Philharmonic. And prior to that, I went to the Colburn School in Los Angeles. Um, I'm originally from Tennessee, and I started on saxophone in sixth grade. Uh, And eventually, I I knew that I wanted to be in an orchestra, um, and that saxophone was not going to get me there unless I only played Prokofiev or (laughs) some other thing that had saxophone (laughs) in it. Um, So I switched to bassoon, um, and we can get into the details of why I did that later. Um, But that's just a general overview, I guess, the the short version. Very cool. Andrew, you've had a lot of success at a relatively young age. Um, I wonder if you might talk to us a little bit about your approach to goal setting, to practice, to your career, um, just to kind of contextualize this amazing path that you've had. I'm sure people would be really interested in how you went about forging that. Sure. Um, Yeah, I was very, very goal oriented from um, the beginning, Um, especially after I switched to bassoon. Um, So I... uh, was at a band clinic and I was playing saxophone and I uh, saw a bassoonist in front of me and I thought it looked cool. (laughs) So that's why I wanted to switch. So I made the switch in eighth grade. And from that point, I got um, a teacher, his name is Anthony Parnther, that I studied with. Um, And I remember 
having this uh, kind of calendar planner kind of thing. And in the back, there's a section for notes. And I went through and um, had goals, like short-term goals, like within the next three months or so. And then midterm, like five to 10 years and lifetime kind of goals lastly. Um, and I kept updating and going back to that, looking at that, um, to see that I was on track for where I wanted to be. Um, I also made sure to practice very, very consistently. I, when I started Bassoon, I was so in love with it. I mean, I started it for the way it looked, um, and then I fell, fell in love with the sound. Um, so once I was really loving the sound, I would play for, I don't know, man, I don't know how long, at least three hours a day. Um, three or four. Most of the time, it would end up being that I would practice and my parents would tell me, or yell at me rather, <laughs> to stop because dinner was ready. Um, but most of the time, I was not ready to stop. Um, so it, I've always um, been very uh, dedicated to practicing. Um, I think I learn a lot from the, pra the process of practicing, even more so than performing. I think I, I get even more out of that process. Um, it gives you a lot, of, a lot of feedback, especially if you, um, like, you know, record yourself, which I was doing a lot of, or play for friends, um, which I also did quite a bit. Um, so I, I had people tell me that uh, it was possible for me to get a job before I left school. Um, and I didn't quite believe them. It felt like there was a bigger gap uh, from where I was to where I needed to be to get a job than, than, I could, um, than I could close within that short time period. But as it happened, uh, the Louisiana Phil audition was the week before graduation. So I went out and played an audition on, I believe it was a Sunday, Sunday, Monday. Flew back um, to Los Angeles, had a recital, did finals, and graduated. And then after that, packed up all my stuff and moved to New Orleans. And it was it was kind of a whirlwind. It was <laughs> very crazy um, to me. Uh, but it's it's uh, looking back, I think definitely the way that I approached practicing um, and playing for people and just being so consistent. I think that's what got me where I am. Um, also the experiences I had, such as at uh, BUTI, where I first met Jackie, um, <laughs> and other music festivals, I think those really helped prepare me and kind of um, helped me gauge where I was, um, not only within the bassoon world, but within um, the entire orchestral scene. When you were a student, uh, did you have a person or maybe more than one person who is especially encouraging about you becoming a musician. Um, I know a lot of students don't believe that they can do it like you were just describing and I'm wondering if your belief that you could do it was more internal or, or if you had some teachers or mentors who really encouraged you and helped you believe uh, that it was possible. I think I had quite a number of people to encourage me. Um, it, a lot of it was self-motivation because I've always loved music. Um, when I was especially young, I, I would 
<laughs> I, uh, first of all, I told my mom I wanted to sing tender in the church choir rather than tenor. Um, so there was always the singing from the very beginning. And then I, also I would invite people over um, to my house after church for concerts on my porch, um, which would have been great. And it was great, except my parents never knew when I was going to do it. <laughs> so random people would just show up at our house um, and I would you know, play my little tambourine for them and dance and sing and all, all these things. Um, so it was very self-motivated, um, but also there were so many people um, who I had an example from, uh, like my aunts, um, and actually my whole family is, is musical. Not all of us are professional musicians, um, but I had two aunts that sang on Broadway. Um, my mom played clarinet in high school. My dad played euphonium. Um, so it's always been there. So I had those examples to follow. Um, then also, like, like I mentioned before, BUTI, um, I was there with Jackie and Matthew Ruggiero, um, who was a really, really big influence for me, actually. Um, that was the first um, kind of bassoon-intensive camp that I went to. I'd, I'd gone to Eastern Music Festival before, and um, there there were eight of us bassoons, and we had like master classes and things like that. But uh, when I went to BUTI, it was for two weeks. It was solely just bassoon master classes, and then orchestra started later. Um, so I got to work quite a bit with um, with Matthew Bajero, and he was very encouraging. Um, he pulled me aside actually at at the time. Um, I was playing on a school instrument. I didn't have my own. Um, and I was looking, you know, I've got to go to college soon and I have to have an instrument. Um, and he was like, I think that you're on a great path. Um, you're practicing well, and I want to help you out as much as I can. Um, so if you need anything like regarding bassoon, like if I can help you in any way, um, like helping to pay for an instrument, uh, because re at that time my dad had just gotten laid off um, so we lost a source of income. Um, he, Matthew Rajo just pulled me aside and told me all these things, and it was so encouraging um, to hear that and know that it's a viable option and that I wasn't just dreaming about something that might never happen. Um, so he was a really big influence. Also, the bassoonists in the Boston Symphony who did the second bassoon um, camp that next summer that I went to BTI, um, Suzanne Nelson, Rick Ranty and Richard Svoboda um, and Mr. Henniger as well. They were all extremely supportive and hearing the Boston Symphony at that age when I was in high school and getting to get the Tanglewood experience um, was one of the most memorable things um, of my life, I believe. Um, so high school years, those, those people were all very... Um, influential, as well as my band directors back at home. Uh, and then teachers at Colburn were always so supportive. Um, I played for as many people as and as many teachers as possible. Um, it didn't matter to them, uh, you know, that I wasn't a violinist or a clarinetist. They were willing to listen um, and give feedback. And they just wanted everyone at the school to do well, um, which I think should be the goal. So I think they did that very well. Um, but yeah, it's it's been great to have so much support from so many people. Um, 
and I think it's it's a mixture of my own self motivation and then all the support from everyone else, my friends, family, teachers, that um, has really helped propel me forward. Andrew, I wonder. One thing that Galit and I talk about in our friendship a lot and also that I'm constantly discussing with my students is this notion of imposter syndrome. And I wonder if you might talk to us about if you've had any experience with imposter syndrome or if not, how you've been able to sidestep that. I'm just curious about your experiences with that. That's a great question and I'm so glad you asked it. I was thinking of maybe bringing it up, but I'm, I'm glad. Uh, you just brought it up. Um, I've definitely had experiences with imposter syndrome. Um, it's very common, I think, when musicians go to school, uh, go to college and uh, grad school to, you know, kind of get sucked up into this whole idea that everything has to be perfect and um, that, you know, everything has to be fixed right away, which with some things that just can't happen because they need time. You need time to mature as a person and as a musician. Um, and it's it's so easy to get caught up in that. And so you start feeling like what you're doing is unacceptable. Um, even when you may be, you know, uh, getting recognition, you know, winning competitions or doing well in um, competitions and having good performances, it, it's easy to feel like it's, by chance, um, I mean, even it, it kind of uh, is it's almost cyclical, maybe, um, at least in my experience, um, even just recently, as, as recently as three weeks ago, um, I was really feeling like, man, how did I like get to where I, I it just doesn't feel like what I'm producing is um, enough to sustain me where I am or like to get me in this to this job with Atlanta and um, I got very very down on myself about it um, reads just weren't feeling right you know and um, it felt like anytime I played it just took so much more effort than I remembered it taking and it, I think it was just so in my head um, rather than just breathing and thinking about the music I was thinking so much about mechanics um, you know playing in tune, coming in on time, all of those things which are very important, um, but can be a hindrance, I think, when you think about them too much, um, especially when you're in this stage of, you know, college or grad or post-grad, and you, at this point, you know how to do those things, um, hopefully. If you've had uh, teachers and been practicing um, well, then hopefully at this point you already know how to do those things. And it's just allowing yourself to trust um, that it's all going to be there. You still have to practice them. Um, but I think focusing on them too much and kind of dialing in on one thing and really going hard at it, I think that can be detrimental. Um, and I, uh, what got me out of that that I was in, uh, I was just, I got a Facebook Live notification, um, and it was from, I think it was Carnegie Hall, um, that Joyce DiGenato was giving a master class. She was in New York for the Richard Tucker um, Opera 
galas or celebration. Um, and she was doing a master class. And she was uh, talking with one singer about breathing because this particular person was having trouble making it through a phrase um, and she just uh, was feeling tense. And so what Joyce did, she said, don't think about breathing. Just don't, don't think about tanking up, you know, trying to get as full as you can with, with the air. Just think about the, what's going on in the music. And she, she had this, she would uh, kind of just go tick, 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 tick in tempo with whatever the music was doing and told the singer to think about that, just the tick, tick, tick. And instantly the singer was able to breathe naturally. Things felt relaxed. She was making long phrases. Um, and so I saw that and I just was like, oh, I wonder if that would work for bassoon because I've been having trouble recently um, feeling loose and relaxed and getting large breaths. Um, so I went, took out my bassoon and practiced what Joyce said. And it was like a revelation. Like <laughs> everything was immediately better. And I, I don't think it's because, um, or rather, I, I think it's because I wasn't so focused on, you know, getting the attack just right or the breath to be as full as possible. It was more about relaxation and going with the music. Um, so I think it's uh, it's always good to have outside uh, influences like that, especially outside of your instrument. Um, even though we don't have the, the exact same mechanics. Um, and in fact, that can be a good thing because I, I don't necessarily breathe the same way a singer does, but the, the way um, that she was able to get them to relax and just focus on the music translates to every instrument or every vocal type. Um, so imposter syndrome is very, very real, and it, I think it's normal. Um, I think you have to listen to your friends and your colleagues and your teachers when they're telling you that it's not as bad as it seems, because it's always terrible to yourself in your head, way worse than it actually is. Um, and it's so hard to just trust yourself. Um, but that trust is something that's so important um, and you have to keep working at it um, to be able to just let let things go and rely on what you've already done, all the work you've done, um, and just be relaxed. Wow, I really love that. And it's it's actually really encouraging to know that you have it sometimes too. Yeah. <laughs> it's very isolating sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so leave it to the oboe player to bring up reeds. But this is now your second position in a major uh, American orchestra. And I would love to know a little bit about your approach to reed making. Um, perhaps it has evolved um, throughout your days as a student and then a professional. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so I currently am playing on um, if we want to get into the, the nitty gritty, I'm playing on Goldser shape reeds, uh, which are a bit wider in the throat and a bit uh, more flare than what I was playing on before at the tip. Um, and the reason for that is coming to Atlanta, this, this orchestra has such a Germanic tradition 
of sound um, and style. Uh, big influence here from the Cleveland Orchestra. And so they like really dark, big sounds here. Um, and it's a wonderful wind section to play in. Um, but when I got here, that was not the style that I was playing. Uh, when I was in school and when for a little bit when I was in New Orleans, I was playing um, completely Hertzberg um, style reeds. So a little bit smaller, um, more, more suited for um, mid-range and upper range playing than, than low range. Um, I felt I was giving up a bit in the low range. I had to compensate a little bit too much. So at one point I switched to a knock an hour shape, which is a little bit wider. Um, and then also at that time, my sound was just a little bit more, um, it had more of the highs um, in the sound. Um, so when I came here, I was really, and still am, uh, searching for that balance of having, you know, a lot of core to the sound um, and a lot of bottom, but also retaining the sparkle on top, you know, so you can project into the hall and still have that ring um, that makes the sound really interesting to listen to. Um, so I'm still kind of transitioning. I've changed um, a few things, especially over the summer. I took some time to, um, to make some changes. Like I, uh, this is not particularly read related, but I had bent my vocals up at kind of an angle so that they weren't, uh, when, when they come from heckle, they're kind of um, at a downward angle entering your mouth, which it just didn't feel comfort comfortable to me. So I bent them up when I got them. And then I was talking with a bassoon repairman, and he said, well, yeah, I guess that like kind of lessens resistance so that um, the sound might spread a little bit more. You know, it's, it's not as easy to get the meaty, dark part of the sound. Um, so over the summer, I bent my vocals back down, and I got more resistance. I also switched which side of the reed I was playing on um, for, uh, I, well, I guess oboe players know this too. I don't know if you'd purposefully scrape your reeds this way, but there's always a stronger and a weaker side. Um, so I switched sides. Um, I always just refer to them as smiley and frowny based on which is more the more curved <laughs> side. <laughs> so I was playing smiley and now I'm playing frowny. Um, and I, I think now um, there's a little bit more resistance and the tone is um, more similar note to note. And I feel like I can, I can just blow rather than manipulate too much with my embouchure. Um, so I'm still I'm still processing all these changes right now, still experimenting, um, and I'm actually uh, looking for a Goltzer shaper. So all of you out there who are listening, if you know of anywhere I can get a Goltzer shaper, let me know. Um, because the one I'm borrowing currently is uh, it belongs to Carl Nietzsche, who was the principal bassoonist um, before me. Well, there's Carl Nietzsche and then Keith Bunky, um, and then me. So this is uh, it's his shaper and he's going to need it, need it back eventually. So I'm looking for something that I can use uh, because I really like the results that I've gotten on this Goldser shape. Andrew, I wonder if you could tell us what music you enjoy listening to. So my favorite music to listen to is Baroque music and specifically French Baroque um, and French Baroque opera. So Rameau is my, my probably my number one and uh, Couperin and Lully and all these other uh, big guys from the French Baroque era. And then also, um, I like Handel and Bach, Telemann, um, Italian Baroque as well. 
so uh, that's that's my go-to listening if I'm like making reads or just trying to relax. Um, and then I also have uh, a lot to listen to for work, um, which is actually very pretty varied. Uh, we do a lot of music, new music here under um, Robert Spano. He he really is a big champion of new works. Um, so I have a lot of listening to do with ASO. And actually, tomorrow, I just remembered, um, my first recording that I did with ASO is going to be um, uh, released from, I think it's on iTunes. Um, I, I know they were putting some things on YouTube, but I'm not sure if that'll be on there. But it's, it's a CD of Jonathan Leshnoff's music, um, his Symphony Number no. 2, and his oratorio Zohar. Um, which both, I think we premiered both of them last year. Uh, the symphony was actually the very first thing I played on my trial. And if you take a listen to it, you kn you'll know that it was kind of hard to just walk in and play that. Um, <laughs> you'll, you'll see what I mean once you hear it. Uh, but yeah, so that's, I, I do a lot of varied listening. Most of it is classical music. Um, sometimes if I just want to, um, you know, get away from classical music, I'll listen to, I guess, R&B or, um, you know, things like Wendy Houston and Patti LaBelle, those, those kinds of people I grew up with. Andrew, what advice would you give to people, students, and probably also um, non-students, people beyond their student career who aspire to have a career like yours? I would say you have to be extremely dedicated, um, really put in the hours of work um of practice and also that includes listening to recordings recording yourself um playing for other people score study um all of those things are really important to make sure that you're prepared um and that you know what's going on so that when you get in these types of situations you feel as comfortable as you can um walking into a orchestra is not always the most comfortable thing, especially if it's new. Um, so it's best to set yourself up for success as much as possible. So, you know, listen to more than one orchestra do a recording of this piece that you're about to play or um, really talk or talk to a composer um, or a conductor about the score study or any questions you have about it. Um, all those things can really help you um, feel like you know what you're doing <laughs> and actually help you know what you're doing, um, which is always important when there are so many other things at play when you sit down in orchestra. Awesome. Andrew, my last question for you is, can you tell us about a favorite musical memory of a past performance um, that you have, something that you hold in your heart as a special performance? Yeah, so I'll actually give you a twofer. Um, so I'll give you a favorite and then a terrifying. <laughs> um, so a favorite uh, was one of my last concerts at uh, Colburn, and it was uh, Tchaikovsky Five with uh, Gustavo Dudamel, and we played in um, the LA Phil uh, Hall, Walt Disney Concert Hall. Um, that was just an amazing experience. Um, he really brought out a lot of great music making from the orchestra, and it was just incredible to be a part of. Um, 
And then for the terrifying music experience, um, I was playing Haydn, I think it was Haydn 80. It was a D minor symphony. Um, I was playing that with the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra in New York. And uh, as you might know, it's a conductorless group. So um, we were sitting down also about this group, uh, the wind players and the strings, I guess, uh, switch seating from piece to piece. Um, so there will be a different concertmaster from one piece to the next, or a different principal flute. Um, so the music gets kind of jumbled up sometimes. Uh, so you have to, you know, I'm sitting over here for this piece, so I have to set my first bassoon part on the second oboe stand, or something like that. So we sit down to play uh, Haydn 80, and my part is nowhere to be found. Um, and the concertmaster is looking back to make sure everything is uh, good, everybody's ready to go. And I just have this wide-eyed look on my face, and I'm just like <laughs> flailing around trying to find the music. I ask the people in front of me and to the sides of me. Nobody can find it in their folders. Um, so luckily, um, the first bassoon part was pretty similar to the second bassoon part. And I just read the second bassoon part. And like where we had thirds, I just kind of tried to remember what they were. I think there was one like really glaring um, note that was very incorrect. But for the most part, I, I managed to get through and I remembered the solos because I'd practiced them. Um, so that was fine. But it was I, I never want to be in that situation again. It was like every musician's worst nightmare come true. Um, but looking back, it's kind of funny now. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I can't think of a better first guest. Well, that's all we have for this time. Make sure you turn in on December 15th for our next episode. And make sure that you follow us on social media at Double Read Dish. We're on Facebook. You can find our SoundCloud page. And also make sure to shoot us an email at DoubleReadDish at gmail.com. We want to hear your questions, anything you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, um, shout out suggestions, anything. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may your reads be vibrant and your instruments be perfectly adjusted. Bye. Bye.